we're going to jump into this panel on mental health and experience design, um, building IRL EXP. Um, so before we go into it, we're gonna give you a brief overview of who we are. My name is Celeste. I'm getting my PhD in clinical psychology, which is one of three um, psychology PhD in which uh, your time is spent between seeing patients for individual therapy and doing research work. So the capacity that I'm talking on this panel in is my research work, which is how people develop a sense of identity and whether that sense of identity is stable or cohesive over time. Um, this panel is going to be talking about an intersection of identity and um, technology, so video games. Hi, my name's Brian. I'm a digital artist and freelance motion designer. Uh, my personal work is in FUI design, and I'll be talking about uh, game UI and people's general interaction with them. Hi, my name is Zifang Li. I'm a designer, artist, and uh, scholar. I'm currently an assistant professor at Kutztown University in Pennsylvania. I work in the intersection of technology, design, and art to create experiential places. In my design practice, I'm interested in the psychology of the physical experience and visual experience, a visual perception, I mean. Um, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm Dash Lundy, and I am a virtual perfection cowboy. Actually, that's, uh, that's just my stage name. I'm a writer and musician specializing in immersive and projective experiences. Hey, I'm Imogen. I'm a product manager who does like architecture and design for SaaS platforms and marketplaces, and I try to like balance the priorities of like institutions with individuals. All right, so let's jump into it. Uh, I'm going to start off with mental health, but first I want to give you guys an overview of what we'll be discussing today. So we're first going to unify some of the terminology um, from design, as my colleagues do, and from psych, um, from psych field. So what uh, is the common vernacular or vocabulary about um, entering into the game environment, um, what people's conceptions are when they enter in. Um, after we talk about the um, intersection of people playing games, um, going into the game environment, we're going to talk about the combination. So what happens when a union forms between the gamer and the game environment? Finally, we're going to talk about things that encourage porting those experiences from the game environment outside of it. All right. So as I said before, I'm going to start off the conversation on mental health. Mental health gets thrown around a lot as a term, but it's very confusing and nebulous unless we define what it is. So. How can you tell when someone has good mental health as we want people to have or bad mental health? Can you remember a time that you knew someone was in poor mental health and what they did to let you know that? So in the field, we define mental health in terms of functioning. Functioning can be the behaviors that people engage in, the emotions that they have, or um, their thoughts, like what they say. This can be further broken down kind of as a cross-section in time. A snapshot is someone actively saying, I'm a loser, I can't do this, um, is someone tearful in the moment. Uh, mental health and functioning is also examined longitudinally. So what are the patterns um, of behaviors that people tend to engage in? Um, the patterns of their emotions, do they tend to be tearful? Do they tend to say things like, um, everybody's always out to get me? 
Um, so that tells us what mental health is, but it doesn't bring it into the game environment. Um, to bring it into the game environment, we're going to be looking at schemas. It's a fancy word, but pretty much what a schema means is a set of expectations about the self and others. So what behaviors do people expect themselves to engage in? What do they expect others to engage in? Do they think that they're capable of doing things? Are they proactive? Um, so that's what a schema is. Again, you can use a um, mindset as a shorthand for it, a set of beliefs about functioning. Um, it's uh, schemas are informed by previous experiences. If someone grew up in an environment where they were repeatedly kind of put down, they might start believing that they can't do things. Um, this is a complicated image, but you can kind of um, think of it as almost tree rings, and each ring or setting that the person goes into, there's a schema associated with it. You're different when you're at a party with friends than you are when you're at dinner with your family. You have two different schemas. Um, so we're going to be talking about the schema that people have while they're playing a game. Um, so this is a kind of image breakdown of the talk. We have the schema that players have when they enter into the game environment. What do they believe about themselves while playing the game? This is related to some sort of outcome. Something gets ported out. There might be changes in the beliefs that people have about themselves, about other people. Um, and my colleagues are going to talk about things that happened, happen in the game environment that either heighten um, the chances for someone's schemas to change, for their beliefs about themselves and others to change or diminish. Um, as I said before, we're first going to go over some of the unified vocabulary. In psychology, a dynamic refers to when um, any two things come together to form uh, like a union. So when someone is playing a game and their schema is activated for that game, um, it's longitudinal over time, and it gets activated by the game environment. So that's the dynamic between the player and the game. Does the player believe that the game is going to be a certain way, that they're going to be good or bad at it? And then um, how does the gameplay either reinforce those ideas or change them? So that's the dynamic. It's a kind of overtime type thing. Um, there's two adjacent concepts to this. Immersion refers to when um, players are able to incorporate into their schemas, their beliefs about themselves, um, the game uh, mechanics, right? So there, it, there's that like initial learning curve where you're playing the game and you're not sure like what buttons do what. When you um, immerse yourself and identify with the avatar, you're um, kind of seamlessly uh, incorporating these, the gameplay mechanics into your schema. I put Link there because uh, he's, you know, kind of an idea of the link between the player and the game. That's that dynamic idea. Um, the flow state is just a fancy term for um, when someone identifies with the avatar and when they're immersed and they lose time, they lose the ability to focus on things outside of what they're doing. Uh, it's, it happens in games, but um, it also happens when people are playing music, um, doing anything that they seamlessly bring the uh, mechanics or like if they feel like their instrument is an extension of their arm, that means that they've reached the flow state. So I'm going to kick it to Brian to talk about some of the gameplay mechanics that could be immersed. Thank you, Celeste. 
so I'll be talking about uh, graphical user interfaces in gaming. And <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so um, uh, GUI or GUI is short for graphical user interface. Uh, it's how we commonly uh, interact with uh, any type of digital device or laptop, tablet, uh, PC, game console. A HUD is a display that display that shows information overlaid on top of the gaming environment. And game mechanics is essentially rules that the player must follow and also the game itself must follow in order to establish a certain type of logic that is consistent in order to make the game possible in the first place. So a HUD uh, varies on the information that's displayed depending on the game that you're playing. It could be a real-time strategy game, a third-person shooter, first-person shooter, platformer, uh, even puzzle games like Candy Crush or something technically have HUDs. Uh, so there's two fundamental styles of uh, heads-up displays. So non-diegetic versus diegetic UIs. A non-diegetic UI is what we're typically used to, so if you could see in the lower left, uh, uh, in Halo titles or typical first-person shooters, uh, you'll see your health, uh, radar, uh, weapons that are uh, engaged, ammo counts, and diegetic UIs, uh, which you could see in the Dead Space series, uh, the health bar is displayed on the character, and so is the character's ability and the active weapon that they have. Essentially, the user or the gamer can access the same amount of information the same way the character does within the lore. So skeuomorphism within games. Uh, trying to make a digital object look like its physical counterpart. Here we have the Halo series and how the HUD essentially evolves over time or per each entry to make you feel more like you're this badass super soldier and you're viewing through their eyes within their helmet. Uh, Arguably, it's a non-diegetic UI attempting to look more like a diegetic system. So here we have the Titanfall series. And here we see mechanics and different types of HUD elements blending depending on what the player's status is. So typically, you play as a pilot on foot that traverses the map around. And at some point, you could call in a giant robot from space and start piloting it around. The HUD slowly adapts and keeps certain elements consistent in order for the player to stay within their immersion and adapt to different mechanics that are currently available to them. Uh, and if we take a step back, we could see um, many design and how it affects the player and staying within the flow state. Again, with the diegetic system that uh, Dead Space has, all of the menus are either projected from the character, such as the inventory system here, or on physical objects that are within the world. So it could be a workbench when you go to modify either your, um, your suit or your weapons. All those menus would be projected to you within the lore or within the actual game space. If we look below, we have uh, the character modding systems and the general start screen for near Automata. Uh, here, uh, you stay within the concept that you're in a game because the general game design is reminiscent of old handheld systems, and your character mod spaces are dependent on your Android or your current Android that you're playing's uh, storage capacity. 
So while you're always balancing these different effects, you'll be able to uh, just stay within the same schema of all that. So a further step back is uh, outside of the game entirely. How does the game design and menu and envelop the player into the schema that they're going to be playing a certain type of game? So the Halo franchise usually relies on a very austere and minimal uh, menu system. A lot of it is a lot of blues with highlights of orange or yellow. And essentially, the player gets into the mentality that they're going to be adapting to the shoot grenade melee system that made the franchise popular in the first place. In contrast, you can see the Titanfall series, uh, the top image being the first game and the bottom image being the second game. It instantly envelops you within the world and uh, tries to keep the character thinking about the lore uh, through these sub subtle hints that you can see even within uh, the lower right image, which displays uh, your Titan. And it reinforces the Titan pilot uh, connections that are very important throughout gameplay. So now we talk about mastery. At some point, all these repetitive actions and uh, feedbacks that you get that you usually rely on your UI to tell you become redundant. And a player would probably seek to either eliminate these systems to declutter their screen and just get more immersed into the, the physical space that they're trying to develop or the character mentality that they're trying to play as. So on top we have uh, the near, near automata in which a character could just strip out every single element of the UI in order to just embrace the beauty that is a lot of the artwork. Whereas in the Battlefield series, which is in the lower right, you can uh, pretty much this is called the realism mod. And since this is usually a first person shooter, you're looking through the eyes of a soldier that would have existed in a very visceral and violent uh, experience in World War One. And the final uh, way that you could evaluate mastery on a more objective level is through game difficulty. On the upper right, uh, I have a display of the Halo Legendary Lasso system. So Legendary is the highest difficulty you could play in the Halo series. And when you turn on the Lasso system, which are game, modif game modifiers based off of skulls that do different things, you'll lose your HUD, lose your mini map, lose any point of reference that you previously had on top of other more difficult modifiers. Uh, on the bottom right, you can see Vanquish, which is a shoot 'em up that pretty much uh, objectively grades the player for their mastery of all the mechanics that they encounter within the game. And if you could manage to nail uh, S-Class or a triple S-Class, you know objectively that you're really, really good at the game. So. All right. All right. Um, so what Brian was talking about was a lot about uh, user interface designs, and the industry is called UI. Um, so how can we use UI to develop um, immersion and that flow state that Celeste was talking about? And for that, we want to talk about our user experience. So what can we learn about um, designing user experience using um, exhibition design? 
Um, over here, I have uh, two maps. One is a maze, and the other one is a labyrinth. So the one on the uh, left side, on your screens, on the left side is a maze. So you're trying to get the user from point A to point B. And there are a lot of dead ends, and they have to start over again. And then they try again, and they'll start over again. And then they try again, and they might get really far, but then again is another dead end. And so the user gives up and doesn't want to go to point B anymore. And in this kind of scenario, the user will give up on the product, and then that doesn't lead to um, developing these schisms. Um, in uh, the map on the uh, left, left side, sorry, my brain lefts are pretty bad. Um, that is actually a labyrinth. So it looks like a maze, it looks complex, but overall, in order to get from point A to point B, you move through the whole system and you will never get lost. It's still one pathway. <clears throat> Um, so, looking at exhibition design, this is a gallery, and in this space, they have divided the space evenly using complete symmetry. This, you would think, would lead the player to go from point A to point B very seamlessly. But as you can see with the demonstration, it leads to a bit of chaos, and there are multiple pathways, and it gets a little bit convoluted. <clears throat> Where's my mouse? There it is. In this scenario, we uh, as designers are providing more guidance to the user and we're creating asymmetrical uh, pathways and this leads the user going from point A to point B all in the same one pathway. There isn't really any room for deviation. <clears throat> In this scenario, again, it is one pathway, and but in this one, it is there is very one plain pathway, and this can be very bored, but it does lead the user to what you want them to do, but it's a little bit boring, and we can think about games like Final Fantasy XIII, where it's all a very one linear straight pathway, and you just want to give up because um, it's not very engaging. So this kind of last kind of scenario is kind of what we want to do. We want to get a very complex kind of pathway, but it still leads to one way in and one way out. We provide obstacles and barriers in order to provide this kind of pathway we want to do, and it's much more complex. <clears throat> so again, let's look at supermarket design. Um, as a metaphor for certain game mechanics and game designs. Um, in a supermarket, how it is designed is that all your essentials are on the outside of the supermarket. So fruits, vegetables, meats, things to keep you healthy and things that you need in your life. That can be a metaphor for our main plot, especially in RPG kind of games. Inside the supermarket are the shelves, and this is the, known as the center store effect. Here, you put in um, junk food, you put in things that are very bright, very colorful, things to really grab your attention and suck you into the store more. And these can be thought about as kind of side quests. <clears throat> So my first example is No Man's Sky. Visually, it was very engaging. Um, the concept was really unique that you can explore multiple um, planets and 
with their really sophisticated algorithm and uh, um, design that they did, no planet would look the same. So everything was beautiful and gorgeous. And so it really hit people on a visceral level and there were so many pre-game sales. And, but as we all know, it was the, one of the biggest flops last year because there was nothing else besides that visual level. It was all center store with no essentials. And then here is a smaller indie, indie game that you may or may not know of. It's called We Were Here. Um, this one is kind of like the exact opposite. It is all essentials. It is a very, uh, it sticks you in a, the strict um, escape the room kind of storyline and pathway. But here, um, the way they designed the UI is that um, it's a two-person co-op game. One person is in the library and they have to, and they're dropped off in the library and they give the clues. And the other person is the explorer. They dropped in a completely different place in the house and they have to explore. And they have to talk to each other using uh, walkie-talkies, which is basically um, you guys connect together on headphones. And so you can't see each other and you have to help each other out. So it gives you the illusion that there is center store because you guys, um, you guys can interact with any object and talk to each other, but it's still following the very, very strict um, linear plot line, but it doesn't feel that way because of that user experience. Hello? Hi. Um, so that's a good segue into mine. I'm going to talk about how you can design your narrative to encourage generalization. Um, and I think uh, the No Man's Sky example is a good example of where you know a story could have really helped keep people engaged in the game. And so I'm going to talk about some things like that. Um, so I want to think about how we can how we can use story in a few different ways to um, give people a memorable experience that they'll bring outside of the game. Um, so I want to talk about um, how we can violate audience's expectations, um, how we can encourage them to see the greater context of the game um, in the world, um, how we can use uh, some conditioning techniques to actually reward certain behaviors with uh, with narrative elements, and then also um, how we use metaphors can affect the way we uh, think about uh, certain schemas. Um, so I wanted to talk first about uh, this concept called the minimal counterintuitiveness effect, or the MCI effect. Um, basically, what this means is that um, uh, the most memorable concepts are the ones that um, challenge our schemas just enough um, without being so far removed from them that they don't actually activate them. Um, so for example, um, you know, these can be kind of hard to uh, speak about. They're sort of implicit. Um, so uh, what you need to do is, uh, or what am I even saying? Um, <laughs> um, basically, the most memorable experiences are, are the ones that just challenge people like just enough. Um, so uh, another thing I want to talk about is the fact that video games are a very interesting medium uh, for storytelling because they're one of the few storytelling mediums that have what I like to call challenge walls, which is that if you don't reach a certain level of mastery in the game, you can't actually progress with the plot. Um, and so I think a lot of old RPGs like Final Fantasy VII, um, um, other 
other great RPGs of the era. What they did well is they had um, they had a lot of side quests and puzzles that required you to actually write things down, or you would have to uh, start a boss fight, scan the enemy, kind of learn the techniques that work, maybe die once, twice, three times before you actually uh, build up your strategies. And this required a lot of uh, real-world work. Um, you would have to either write down the information you needed, consult a strategy guide, uh, now you can go online, um, but also, uh, you know, talking to your friends or um, these other type, types of really useful uh, soft skills that uh, help you out in life. Um, so a lot of people probably know about breaking the fourth wall as a concept. Um, it's when you, the characters within the game speak directly to the audience. This can be a good way of violating expectations, um, but it's also sort of cliche now. So um, it's important to think about how you're doing it and do it intentionally, intentionally in a way uh, that's unexpected. Um, I think one that really still stands the test of time um, are, well, actually, there are a lot of great examples from Metal Gear Solid. Um, but I think the, the Psycho Mantis boss fight is an especially good example because they don't just uh, call out the interface you're using in-game, but they actually uh, interact with your, your hardware. Uh, you know, Psycho Mantis tells you to put your controller on the ground, and the rumble feature, which was new at the time, actually moves your controller across the ground, um, which kind of encourages you to see the game in the context of the real world, which, if you know Kojima's narratives, you know that he's really trying to make some statements about um, war and uh, politics, and uh, really does want you to take it outside of the game. Uh, so another thing you can do with your story is uh, give people more story and uh, deeper characters if they're willing to explore. Um, so Majora's Mask was a great example of this. Uh, they, you know, uh, the main plot you can beat in a matter of hours, but if you decide to interact with and help the various characters in the game, not only do you have a more rewarding experience of interacting with those characters, um, but you also get items that uh, not only unlock additional things within the world, but make certain challenges um, more easy to overcome. So that's an example of negative reinforcement. Uh, it's, it's encouraging you by making the game easier. Um, and also, one thing I like about Majora's Mask is that you are given the option to help but not hinder characters. So you really can only be rewarded for um, these kind of positive behaviors. There's not really a way to negatively impact the characters in the game. And finally, uh, video games can be a great place to practice complex uh, ethical decision making, uh, like in uh, Mass Effect or Undertale. Um, not only because it's a safe space to interact with these situations, um, but there are also opportunities to engage schemas by using metaphor. Because a lot the the way that we understand abstract concepts like like morals is through. Um, metaphors from the real world, right? So uh, we tend to use things like monsters and aliens as descriptions of the other, right? That activates the schema of things that are different from us. Um, and we've seen this trend in games like Mass Effect and Undertale where we are encouraged to have more empathetic relationships with uh, monster and alien characters. And I think this is a really interesting way to sort of change, um, uh, target the schema of the other and kind of encourage people to uh, be a little more open towards those who are different from themselves. Hi. Um, I'm going to talk about freedom. Um, first, to integrate that with everyone else's stuff, um, we learned from Celeste that um, all of this is based on immersion, your ability to identify with an avatar as opposed to like having a hero that you're pulling the strings on. Um, and 
once you identify with the avatar, you can engage with your schema that have followed you from outside of the game world. Um, and schema is also used to orient you in an experience. Um, we learned from Brian that, um, well, we learned a lot of things, but um, the one that I care about right now is that feedback incentivizes continued immersion and generalization. Um, and those UI elements um, provide feedback, uh, diegetic especially, um, without you know rem rem reminding you um, that you're you know not actually in a game. Um, from Zifeng, um, we learn freedom is a spectrum, and that's what I'm going to expand on. Um, we know there's a sweet spot where we're sort of sustaining an illusion of choice, and then we have to balance that against real choice and then like heavily prescribed direction. Um, and when we get that right, people are motivated to continue, and they're interested, um, and they're willing to break those challenge walls that Dash was talking about. Um, we were actually initially focusing a lot more on visual design than we are now. Um, but we expanded beyond that into experience design and Dash presented that we have a lot uh, broader narrative tool set than just visual design um, to modulate freedom along that spectrum. Um, so the principle of freedom is one of, I think, seven principles of learning, and I just use them as like a good um, intermediary between psychology and design because I don't actually understand psychology, so I just get what I can off Wikipedia. Um, I'm self-taught. I didn't go to school. Drop out. Um, but don't, because you paid good money for that. Um, anyway, that's the first rail shooter up there. So that's an example of uh, constraints. Um, so let's go to the next slide. Um, this is what's called a dark pattern that we're really familiar with. This is um, dark patterns are basically hostile patterns in design. Um, this is what's called a roach motel. Um, so if you, you know, um, if you subscribe to Tinder Plus or if you get um, tricked into buying a like multimedia cable package with a home phone and you want to get out of those things, um, it's usually very difficult, even though it was really easy for you to get in. Um, that's why it's called a roach motel. Um, you go in, but it, you have a hard time finding your way out. Um, this stuff particularly um, uses a pattern called, well, it's pretty obvious, it's burying where we just hide things. Um, and that's, that's a good way to keep taking people's money. Um, and that's, that's just one form of captivity. And captivity can be really aggressive or really subtle, and sometimes you don't even notice it. We can go to the next slide. Um, this is I Want to Be the Guy. This is a map of the whole game. Um, and this is a platformer that presents itself as open world, but the open world is constantly fighting you. And there's really only one path through this thing if you actually want to be the guy. It's a horrifying game. It's Don't play it, but definitely watch it on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you play it, you're going to lose a couple years of your life. Um, and then there are other examples of this that we see outside of gaming as well. For example, your Facebook privacy settings. You probably don't know what a lot of them are because you didn't have to agree to them when you signed up. Um, and then on the other end of things, there are what's called captive flows, um, one-track on-rails experiences that you can't really get out of or change course on at all. Um, and long-form tutorials are uh, a subset of that. So Final Fantasy XIII, a 40-hour game, has a 30-hour tutorial. Not cool, man. Um, and then if we go to the next, um, 
there's Captivity's sister, Misdirection. Um, so this is Stanley Parable. It's a really good example of misdirection because there are a ton of factors at play here. Um, there's a narrator appealing to credibility and trust and also um, subverting your lack of trust, um, thinking, oh, maybe this is the time that he's being you know, honest with you and telling you to go through a red door, which introduces a massive conflict with your visual schema because through color psychology, we learned that red means stop or fire or whatever the hell. Um, and blue is good, blue is calming. Um, blue is gonna keep you safe and warm. Um, so that's one side of it is the visual. Um, this is because of a thing called conveyance or in UI and UX design, we call it signified affordance, which is just the idea that a chair looks like a chair and a cat looks soft and fuzzy. Um, the other side of that is storytelling, tone, a lot of the narrative aspects Dash was talking about, um, where you're using trust, skepticism, guilt, shame. A really good example of shame um, is Bandcamp. After you listen to something three times, it tells you the time it's time to open your wallet. Um, and then another example of that is like every time you go on a news site and they try to get you to sign up to their email newsletter, you have to say something hor about, horrible about yourself when you click on the no button. Um, yeah, um, so that just all adds up to a bunch of conflicts and different schema and, so, and attributes of them, which confuses you and fucks up the dynamic of the experience. And when that happens, when you're confused and you can't really apply anything that you know effectively, um, you become passive and then you're not going to be immersed. Um, all of that stuff fails at one of like three things. Um, the first thing is orienting the user. This is how you like engage their declarative memory. Um, um, and a way that you can do that compared to like having super long tutorials or dropping people into things unexpectedly, just shorten tutorials and do things more contextually. Um, disclose hierarchy, where people have been, where people are going. Um, and within that, you can do what's called progressive disclosure, which is you only provide or you again, provide information that's important to you at the point of disclosure. Um, transit signage is a really good example of this. Um, this is not totally obvious at first, but if you use the MTA, you know what this means. And you especially know what this means after you get on the A train and you, you know, know that you're going to 81st Street and that's where the Museum of Natural History is going to be. Um, so that's cool. Um, the other thing is to activate the schema once the person is, uh, you know, oriented. So, you know, make use a tone that's encouraging, motivating. Um, don't co-opt conveyance to signified affordance, the stuff that I was talking about where a thing looks like it does what it looks like it does. Um, with the caveat that, like, it can go a little too far. Like, if you, um, if you remember iOS 6, everything was insanely, insanely skeuomorphic. The, the Game Center app was literal, like, green felt trying to look like shuffleboard. Um, that's going a little too far because it's over-relying on your schema, and it actually starts to, like, counteract with your ability to identify it as its own thing. So it just, it just it's horseshoe theory. It just goes around. Um, and then the last thing is that feedback stuff. You know, give people a nice little after they press a button, it's great. People are going to love it, and they're going to be motivated to continue, and that's going to just get them even more immersed. Um, a subset of feedback, really popular in RPGs, my voice is weird, um, is reward. 
quest rewards, any, anytime you get something for doing something, that's just basically paying you to keep going. Um, that's me. So we talked about oh, elements of the uh, game design that can heighten immersion or affect the experience of playing the game. I'm going to bridge it over to some learning theories. So how do we take those things that are happening in the game um, dynamic and then map them over and um, help a player learn how to incorporate that into the rest of their life? Um, so you guys have probably heard about social modeling. Um, it's this idea that people watch other people use successful strategies and then incorporate it into um, what they know is possible for success. Uh, it's adjacent to this idea of rehearsal. What people tend to do, uh, do most often is what they'll fall back on. Um, this was initially the... Um, argument or rationale for the link between violence and video games that um, people are rehearsing or model or the video games model that if you jump on a mushroom you get like a coin right um, however um, and I have citations in this slideshow so if anyone wants any references um, it's been kind of repeatedly not shown that there is a link. When there is a link between violence and video games, it tends to be poorly um, operationalized. So if violence isn't being modeled or rehearsed, what is, right? Um, so um, there are there is data that we can look at on this. So one way to break down what things can learn, uh, what people can learn and incorporate into their schema are procedural memory and declarative. Procedural, you can think of kind of like muscle memory. It's the things that people can do quickly. Um, so side scrollers and um, first person shooters tend to show increases in visual spatial processing because, um, and you can see here in Super Mario World and in Celeste, the um, screen is very saturated with information. And so players have to learn how to scan really quickly and then um, uh, evoke the successful strategy, right? Um, so if you've ever heard that there's an increase in IQ when people play video games, this is what they're talking about. Visual spatial reasoning is a subset of increased functioning, right? And so that's what IQ is. Um, so that's procedural. Declarative, is, declarative memory and learning are things that people can say about themselves and other people. Um, so this was, it's obviously funny, it was on Reddit the other day, um, kind of hoarding your items for uh, an emergency in the future. It's funny, but it also shows that something is happening there, that people have gotten to a situation where they didn't have enough items. They learned that they had the aversive consequence that they weren't able to heal themselves, and so now now they're hoarding, they're problem solving, and they know that about themselves, that they can problem solve. Um, so those are two, so those are two um, types of memory that can be widened, that can be rehearsed in, in games. Um, another learning theory, this is more contemporary, is scaffolding. It's associated with Vygotsky. It's this idea that people have schemas or um, possible strategies and behaviors, but then they engage with something that temporarily holds or widens that schema. So for example, um, children in a class, uh, their 
peers or their teachers act as a scaffold that then increases their schemas after. Um, so what my colleagues were talking about, about the game environment, things that make it more easy to play are uh, things that can scaffold the uh, increasing schema. All right, so these are some examples. As Brian was talking about, there's this idea of mastery, which is pretty much being able to um, go through all the skills that you've learned, like a Rolodex, and pull them out as needed in uh, future situations. So as you can see um, on the bottom right, um, left, there's uh, Super Mario World Level 1. It's a very like simple um, skill that players are just learning for the first time. And then um, I think that's around level three next to it where um, players are expected to know that skill, be able to pull it up quickly, and um, like switch out multiple skills that they've learned through. I think it's also called gamification, as my colleagues were saying. Um, so that's mastery of behaviors. That's that more pr um, procedural memory. Um, there's also mastery of declarative skills, of things that people believe they're capable of. Um, some examples here are uh, mastery of the game structure and interface. As um, Dash was saying, I know that if I go to this part of the game, I'll be rewarded in some way. Right. So a secret quest rewards the skill of explore exploration that then those players can port out of the dynamic with the game. All right, so um, I don't know if anyone here has played uh, Trauma Center, Second Opinion. Has anyone played that game? Yeah, it's so impossible, it's so difficult. And um, so we, we were talking about declarative and procedural um, memory, but something that, you know, with mental health and video games, you want to port out of the game environment are social skills. And so this is one of my favorite walkthroughs for Trauma Center Second Opinion because um, it actually talks about emotional coping strategies. So the game is so frustrating that like rage quitting or throwing your controller or getting distracted by your emotions um, is not successful. It's not a successful strategy for continuing forward in the game. And so through learning emotional coping strategies, you're able to succeed in the game. Um, this is also a fairly complex um, uh, procedure that this person has to go through, right? Because they have to already have tried out multiple strategies, know that those strategies don't work, then reach out to a peer. So they're also being rewarded for finding that strategy guide. And then that peer is scaffolding emotional coping. Um, so that's, we, we've gone over some of the um, data that's out there. Now we're gonna talk about future directions. A lot of games are already trying to evoke schema um, and encourage social lo um, learning through their gameplay. Um, and these are some ways that they're doing it. So distal is anything that is um, long from when the consequence is. Proximal is something that's right up when the consequence happens. So you can have this distal activation of schema. Try to encourage the player to embed their sense of self into the player. Um, so Mass Effect and um, I think I have Dragon Age there and The Witcher. They have these moral questions um, in the past, in the in the like avatars past that they have the player answer while they're designing uh, the character. So 
it is possible that this is a way to um, encourage a player to immerse themselves or identify with the avatar. However, you have to consider, um, is the player familiar with the game? Do they already have a schema for what they expect of the game? Do they have a schema about the studio in general? Um, so yeah, these are considerations. Um, uh, along with the distal activation of schema, there's the proximal one. So um, these types of decisions in Mass Effect and in Celeste, um, they ask players to use social skills in the moment, and then they give immediate uh, consequences or immediate reinforcement to the skills that players use. These two examples are fairly complex. They give um, the player facial cue information, so it evokes how well that player can read the facial cues, and then the statement. So what does the statement mean in the context of the facial expression that the player is reading? Um, Again, this relies on players' previous schema for reading facial expressions. How good are they at it? Um, I do a few uh, social skills groups for um, patients with psychosis. This is the type of stuff that we do in those groups. Um, there isn't data on like uh, people in general playing these games, but uh, if you look into serious games online, um, social modeling in games for players with autism is a big area of research, and they have very exaggerated facial expressions so that people learn the consequences and um, learn whether or not they're reading facial expressions well. Um, so that's the immediate activation. Um, we know that immediate consequences tend to be the most impactful, as Imogen was saying. Um, so that's activation prior to decisions. There's also act, um, consequences that could be either immediate or delayed. Um, so these are some examples of immediate on one side um, that gives you the content of how people felt about it. Um, and then uh, I like the one in the middle from The Walking Dead because it just tells you that the character will remember. It doesn't tell you whether it's positive or negative. So it expects the player to... Um, try to embed some of their skills in evaluating whether it will be positive or negative that they remember that thing. Um, so on the other side of the screen here, I have some examples of delayed um, consequences. Um, just so you can see what they look like, one is from Detroit Making Human. It has the whole web of decisions, and it tells the player afterwards what web they cut themselves off from at certain decisions. Um, so it's nice to see, but um, it could evoke a sense of learned helplessness. It's so late that the player can't do anything about knowing that, so it could make them feel helpless or um, just reinforce that they're not good at reading social skills um, or don't have good social skills, and so they didn't get to an area of the um, interaction that they wanted to. Um, a counterpoint to that that is still distal is Catherine. I don't know if any of you guys have played it. It's great. Yeah. Um, so what they do is there's a, so first of all, they tell you how other people responded to certain questions. So you get um, placed in the larger context, like Dash was talking about. It gets built out of the game environment. Um, but they also have a little counter of morality that is based on your previous decisions um, in gameplay, and it just shows how your previous decisions are activating in that moment. So it feels more immediate, even though it's a distal activation. 
Um, so just to remind you, this was the model that we were working off of, that people have these schemas, these are what their mental health is related to, and then there's some uh, generalization, there's some building of their schemas that could encourage um, different socialization, better mental health, that could maybe feel better about themselves and their expectations of others. Um, and there were these gameplay elements that related to it. I know that our um, talk was pretty um, dense, and these are some of the things that we just covered with you guys. Um, as you can see, it's a pretty complicated system. This is actually called a, a mediation moderation model. So the gameplay heightens the outcomes. Um, so as far as future directions, I know I talked about these um, learning theories, but I don't know if you guys noticed that a lot of the assumptions working through this is that um, people are going to want to make pro-social decisions or that they're going to want to behave in an X or Y way. Um, the study of individual differences in psychology is just um, the examination of subsets of the population. So say that you have a player, so for example, a subset might be people with green eyes. Um, so say that you have someone who's high in impulsivity, they speed through the entire tutorial and they're going to keep kind of perseverating. They're gonna keep trying the same option over and over again and feel helpless. Um, a big uh, pushback that I get from my colleagues in psych is what do you do with the players who get reinforced by hurting other characters or the aversive consequences? Um, I think in that case, and again, there's no data in this area yet, what is reinforcing about um, hurting other characters or a character death? Is it that they're able to continue the game anyway? Um, is it that they maybe feel bad about themselves and then they're like, oh yeah, I'm terrible, I hurt that person, or not? I mean, what's going on there? You have to operationalize it before you can really make any interpretation of what's happening. Um, so I'm gonna kick it back to Imogen to talk about elements of these kind of aversive. Yeah, before I continue, I'm gonna need a little audience participation. Can I just have like everyone in this column, like give me a round of applause? <laughs> All right, that was just for me. Um, so I'm gonna talk about process, how we can figure out, you know, um, based on our knowledge that we need to figure out where the sweet spot of freedom is, um, how we can develop um, um, sort of a framework for determining what choices to present people with when. Um, so the first thing that you wanna do is understand your user or player. Um, so as a writer or designer, um, you can come up with some imaginary friends. Um, hopefully they will be um, diverse so you, so you can have a broad variety of use cases and users. Um, and then also a broad variety of outcomes that you're addressing and schemas that you're including. Um, and you wanna break down those imaginary friends basically into a spreadsheet. You, you develop attributes or what's called heuristics. Um, that describe those people, um, what their expectations, their motivations are, um, and how they might respond to different stimuli, basically anything that can affect their mental state. What you're doing essentially is modeling people's schemas. Um, and you need to work from a variant set because if you overgeneralize your users, um, you're mean. Um, go back. Um, sorry. <laughs> So the next thing to do after you understand your user is to analyze or um, observe their behaviors or 
just guess at it, I guess. If you don't have test data, that's okay sometimes, but don't do it for a long time. Um, what we do in UX design is flows and scenarios. So based on those personas, um, those schemas that we modeled, um, we are going to make up a bunch of stories about those schemas and people. Um, basically what we're doing is identifying different paths through the thing before we actually design the thing. Um, and then what we can do when we have a bunch of them um, is consolidate all of them, accommodate all of the flows that we need to have for different types of people and users, um, and triangulate sort of a master user flow. Um, and that figures out, you know, basically the, it's, it's, a, it's a foundation for the entire structure of your application, your game, your narrative, whatever you're making. Um, the last thing to do on the next slide um, is to prioritize those different things. Um, this is what's called a red route analysis um, because in the top right, things are more filled in, thus they are red. Um, you're basically plotting different aspects of your user flow, different features, functionalities, or if in a game, different, different mechanics and things. Um, on one axis, how often people use them, and on the other axis, how many people use them. Um, so if something's in the top right, everyone uses it all the time. If something's in the bottom left, no one uses it ever, maybe once. Um, so this is one I made for Twitter. Um, everyone has their home tab and they like tweets. Um, most people reply and tweet. Um, very few people yell at Jack as much as I do asking him to let me edit tweets. Um, I think I'm done. Oh wait, I have another slide. <laughs> Um, so after that whole talk about process, understand the user, analyze their behaviors, and then balance the different use cases to figure out how you want to prioritize decisions so people have effective agency in things, um, is to figure out the last 20% of it. So that gets you there kind of structurally, um, but you need to validate that with empathy and int intuition. If you go through it as the designer and it feels like something is fighting you, then everyone's going to feel like it's fighting them, or most people are. Um, and process can't capture some of those things. And what you want to do is instead of trying to get perfection out of a process, is you want to iteratively do it and then validate as you go along. So use your own impressions, use analytics and test information. Um, and yeah, there's a couple of totally unrelated points that I just want to like throw out there because I think they're important. One is accessibility. Um, if you're giving people agency, you want to make sure everyone has agency. And a good rule of thumb is to make sure that whatever you're making is operable with any one of the senses disabled. Because um, you don't want to leave anyone out. Um, and that's also just going to make it better for people who are fully sighted and able and hearing and everything. Um, because every aspect of your experience is going to be more thought through. Um, Web designers have it really easy. We have a set of standards called WCAG, W-C-A-G, um, that provides for things like contrast and how often we should make people make decisions and things like that. Um, the last thing is um, the work environment. Uh, if it sucks, then what you make is gonna suck, so you should unionize it. Um, <laughs> that's everything. All right, guys, thank you. We can take questions. Oh, yeah, you guys can applaud too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>